0: Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com.
1: Quiz time! Both the librettist and composer of *Die Zauberflöte* belonged to what fraternal organization?
0: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund.
1: If you guessed the Freemasons, you are correct. Die Zauberflöte contains several symbolic references to Freemasonry. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we are delving into our archives to explore Die with the late renowned music scholar Father Owen Lee. Die is a sublime and magical fairy tale full of mysticism, love, and humor. Keep listening to learn more about the opera's fantastical drama and ethereal score.
2: A quarter of a century ago, I went to Vienna for the first time. Of all the cities in the world, Vienna calls music most to mind. Many of the great composers of the 18th and 19th centuries lived and worked in its graceful environs. The central cemetery contains, with a million and a half other graves, those of Gluck, Beethoven, Schubert, Brahms, Mahler, and the two Johann Strausses. And although Mozart was from Salzburg, and had his best successes in Prague, and traveled as far as Naples and Paris and London in his young days as a child prodigy, it was in Vienna that he lived and worked and suffered most. And it was there he died. It was in Vienna that he was laid in a common grave. It's a curious story. Not a single mourner stood by when the young composer's remains were disposed of. Not in the great central Friedhof, but in a little suburban cemetery on that first trip to Vienna, I found Rahensteingasse Acht, the address where Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart died almost in the shadow of St. Stephen's Cathedral. A Mozart court stood on the site, half demolished with stone images of Gluck and Carabini, Beethoven, and Haydn staring into space as if overawed by the Mozart who, when he lived here, wrote such strange and difficult music. Behind the facade of Acht there was nothing to interest me. The house where Mozart lived through his last months was no more. A few blocks away, Vienna had preserved another house, the place where, in a happier day, Mozart had composed that most vivacious, profound, and revolutionary opera, The marriage of Figaro. Perhaps it was better to preserve the memory of that triumph and not the memory of the death here in the Rauensteingasse. As Mozart lay on his deathbed, another opera of his, some will say the greatest ever written, was running nightly in a people's theatre beyond the old walls. That was the magic flute. Everyone loved it little children, young lovers, shopkeepers professors from the university the two hundred ducats mozart was paid to write it wasn't enough even to cover his debts while the joy and beauty he gave to all who came to see it were altogether immeasurable night after night lying in the house in the Rauensteingasse in a fever he would follow in his imagination the performance of the magic flute across the city he would look at his watch and say, Ah, now they are all laughing at the birdcatcher's song. Now they are hearing how man and wife together can reach to godliness. Now the prince and princess are passing unharmed through the fire and water. Then, if his strength held out, he would work some more on a requiem mass. He was never to finish it. The first music in the magic flute, the famous overture, is in the key of E-flat, a key marked on the staff by three flats and the overture begins with three elegant, shivering E-flat chords. Groups of three are of course important in myths and fairy tales in christian symbolism three often signifies the trinity i am not a mason but i have it on good authority that three is also a number with masonic significance the magic flute will give us as well three ladies three boys three temples and much more music in three flats The first audiences at the Magic Flute, expecting a fairy tale opera, may well have been puzzled by the austerity of the three initial chords, and even more by the religious nature of the adagio that follows them. but the overture then settles into more accessible music, a beautifully developed fugue on a happy theme in the key of three flats. Our orchestra here is the Philharmonia led by Otto Klemperer. Just when the audience has settled down at last for the expected light entertainment, the happy fugue stops for more of the solemn chords, three times three, in the key upwardly related to E-flat, B-flat. solemn pronouncements will recur in the opera when the hero begins his three trials. This is to be an opera half-comic, half-serious. It is also, at least partly, a Masonic opera, so some of its meanings are bound to remain obscure to us who are non-initiates. But most people who write about the Magic Flute today, and the Masonic friends I have spoken to on the subject, will say that the Masonic element in the opera can be, and usually has been, overemphasized. The magic flute the opera Mozart wrote before he died is about many things. We first see a rocky landscape overgrown with exotic flowers. A Japanese prince, or as some read the early sources, a Javanese prince, rushes on with a dragon in pursuit. Our endangered prince is Nikolai Geda In a moment the prince has fallen exhausted into a faint. Three veiled ladies appear, slay the dragon with their silver spears, exclaim how handsome the unconscious prince is and go off to call their queen and what ladies they are elizabeth schwartzkopf christo ludwig and marga höfken Prince revives and sees with relief that the dragon is dead. Then a strange little fellow, half-man, half-bird, appears. He carries a birdcage on his back with bright-colored birds inside. He is Papageno, in this recording, Walter Berry, piping on pan pipes and singing a little song that, once heard, is never, ever forgotten.
3: I'm ich big um ich I'm a big fan, I'm und
0: big fan, I'm a big
3: fan, I'm a big fan, i
2: Papageno proclaims that what he most wants in life is a wife to share his kisses. Meanwhile, he catches birds for his queen, and he receives bread and wine from her in return. Papageno starts with fright when he sees the prince and asks where he came from, and is astonished to learn that there are countries other than the one he knows. The prince asks Papageno if he has killed the dragon. Papageno Terrified even more at seeing the beast, none the less claims, when he is satisfied that it is dead, that it was indeed he who killed it, and with his bare hands. The three ladies return, give Papageno a stone and water for his bread and wine, and place a padlock on his mouth to punish him for lying. For the truthful prince, they have another gift a miniature portrait of the queen's daughter, Pamina. The prince, to a lovely tune in three flats, falls in love with Pamina at first sight. How could he not? His own name is Tamino. Then, as thunder sounds, the mountainous background parts to disclose the queen herself, the queen of the night. She first tells the prince, in music of poignant mysteriousness, that her beautiful daughter has been carried off by an evil sorcerer named Sarastro. Then, in a burst of italianate coloratura, she proclaims that if the prince can rescue the princess, the beautiful girl will be his. Here is Lucia pop as the Queen of the Night. Italians have always called the Queen Fiamante, the star-flaming one, and she is part of a long line of ambivalent matriarchs in the history of literature and the history of religions. She's been compared to Isis and Ishtar and Astarte and Sibylle and Demeter and Juno, grieving and sympathetic at first, then turning savage, vindictive and destructive. As for the evil Sarastro who opposes the Queen, the closeness of his name to that of Zoroaster is intended. Sarastro is some sort of ancestor of Nietzsche's Zarathustra almost a century before Zarathustra. He heralds the destruction of one era and the dawn of a new one. Does that make him good or evil? Neither completely. I think we will see that he is as ambivalent as the queen he confronts. The queen's three ladies now present the prince with a magic flute and removing the padlock from the bird man's lips, provide him with a set of magic bells. Tamino and Papageno must go together to Sarastro's castle to rescue the queen's daughter. They will be guided there by three boys, whose counsel they must follow. Papageno is not altogether happy about this, especially when he hears that the formidable serastro eats Papagenos for breakfast. The scene ends with the three magical ladies bidding the two oddly-matched young heroes a kind of Christmas carol auf Wiedersehen. The scene changes, and we are in a splendid room in the castle fortress of Sarastro. The captive princess has tried to escape and is being threatened now by one of Sarastro's minions, Monostatos. Suddenly a rescuer appears. Not the prince, as we might have expected. Our two adventurers have got separated. It's Papageno, the bird man, that comes to the rescue, somewhat ineptly. So he's terrified when he comes face to face with Monostatos. And Monostatos, he's terrified too. Each, in fact, takes the other for the devil and runs off to hide. Papageno recovers from his fright, however, and steals back to tell the princess that a prince has fallen in love with her and is coming to save her. It's her dream come true. And tender-hearted as she is, She tells the Birdman that she hopes he too will soon find someone to love. Every creature they sing together in the key of three flats feels love. Love is the secret of the universe. It is what keeps us alive. Anyone hearing the duet outside the opera and touched by its angelic charm and innocence will be amazed to discover that its two singers are not in love with each other in fact, have never met before, that she is a princess and he a bird man. But that only makes it typical of this charming, innocent, and utterly unpredictable opera. Here are Walter Berry and the silvery-voiced Gundula Janowitz. In the next scene, we catch up with the prince. He has been led onwards by the three boys, singing that he must be steadfast, patient, and keep silent. The boys fly off when they have brought the young prince to three temples dedicated to reason, nature, and wisdom. The prince approaches the first two, and mysterious voices tell him to go back. Then he approaches the third, the central temple of wisdom, and the temple door opens before him. An old priest comes forth to tell the prince, surprisingly, that Sorostro is not evil, but good. He has taken Pamina from her mother for reasons that cannot yet be revealed. Left alone, the prince wonders, O everlasting night, when will you end? And mysterious voices answer, Balt, soon, soon, young man, or never. He then asks them, is Pamina still alive? They answer, Pamina, Pamina is still alive. i Heartened that his Pamina still lives, Tamino raises his magic flute to his lips, and animals of every description appear, dancing to his music. For a moment, Tamino is an Orpheus, charming the beasts. our flute-playing prince hears the panpipes of Papageno in the distance and hurries off to look for him. But echoes are confusing in Zarastro's kingdom, and Papageno and the princess come on stage from the opposite direction, with monostatos and a troop of slaves in hot pursuit. Suddenly Papageno remembers his magic bells, plays a nursery tune on them, and the ferocious pursuers start to dance harmless as nursery toys. Finally, to end Act 1, the man we've been waiting all along to see approaches, Sarastro himself. Papageno, expecting the worst, is terrified. Pamina, in a famous E-flat phrase, sings that they must tell divarheit, divarheit, the truth. Well, divarheit was also the name of one of the Masonic lodges in Vienna. Sarastro, as the old priest told us would be the case, turns out to be a wise old man, gentle with Pamina, but unable to tell her just now why he had taken her away from her mother. Meanwhile, Monostatos has caught someone, the prince, and he expects a reward for it. But Sarastro only orders Monostatos to be whipped for his cruel treatment of the princess. He also commands that the prince and the princess, who now catch sight of one another for the first time, He separated and led by different paths into the Temple of Wisdom. Babageno is led within, too, but he must surrender his magic bells, and Tamino must surrender his magic flute. Are you still with me? Does it make any sense? Does it seem like the center of the whole history of civilization, or is it just a third-rate fairy tale? Well... Mozart had wanted for some ten years to write another opera in his native German, and one designed not for some imperial court, but for people of all social classes. But he hesitated when the subject of the magic flute was suggested. Vienna's theaters had already had their fill of magic mirrors, magic arrows, and magic rings, and now he was approached by the very impresario responsible for some of those, Emanuel Schikaneder with another story from a book of oriental tales of magic. Should he compose this magic flute? Both he and Schickenader were Freemasons. Schickenader, something of a philanderer, was not always a Mason in good standing and seems actually to have been expelled for loose conduct from the lodge at Regensburg. But Mozart, in his last years, was more and more convinced of the secret society's high ethical aims. The Magic Flute is, on one level, an allegory celebrating the conflict of the Enlightenment and particularly Masonic Enlightenment with what was perceived as reactionary Catholic baroquery. The Magic Flute is a very personal, psychobiographical statement by a still young Catholic composer who turned in his last years to Freemasonry, to find strength and inspiration. But to stop at a level of Masonic symbolism is to limit a universal opera severely to its own period. It is to make a mere allegory only partly true out of what is, in the end, a universal and profoundly true mythic statement. The magic flute is more than the struggle between counter-reformation and enlightenment. It has much more to do with the universals of myth than with the particulars of history. Its meanings, like its music, are prismatic. Like all works of art that deal with myth in intuitive ways, it is ultimately about the human soul, and so it is a parable for any and all of us. Let's try to see that as we move on to Act Two. Sorastro and his priests process in to a slow march that sounds, to this American from Toronto, a lot like, O Canada. Sorastro nominates young Tamino for admission into his priesthood. Tamino will undergo a series of trials. Papageno will accompany him, and in some of the trials, Pamina will play a part. Sorastro then sings an aria, a deep bass aria, that George Bernard Shaw said was the only music that would not sound blasphemous coming from the mouth of God though it is hardly something the Judeo-Christian god would be expected to sing. It is an invocation to the Egyptian divinities Isis and Osiris, sung here by Gottlob Frick. scene changes. Two priests bring our heroes to the depths of the temple and tell them that they will soon see their promised brides with rhyming names. Tamino will see Pamina and Papageno will see a Papagena like himself. But they must in this first trial not speak. Left alone, the companions are unexpectedly visited by the three veiled ladies from act one. The ladies, in alarm, tell them that Serastro is lying to them, that the queen has found her way inside the temple to set things right. Then there is a loud clap of thunder, and the ladies flee. Tamino and Papageno have kept silent. They have passed their first test. Next, we are in Sorastro's garden by moonlight. Pamina is asleep. Monostatos creeps up on her lustfully, and asks the moon to hide its face at what he is about to do. He is sung here by Gerhard Unger.
3: I kiss you.
4: Moon,
2: Pamina awakes in fright. The queen bursts into one of the opera's famous arias, a star-flaming coloratura piece, fiendishly difficult, with dozens of staccato high Cs and four quick Fs above high C. In the course of the aria, the queen gives her daughter a dagger and tells her she must kill Sorastro with it. Then she vanishes as suddenly as she came. Suddenly Sorastro is there. He knows everything already. He forgives. In diesen heilgen Hallen, he sings, within these sacred halls we know no vengeance. This famous aria is an oasis of repose in what came to be called Mozart's Masonic style, and its second verse is explicit. In diesen heilgen Mauern, within this sacred masonry, human beings love one another. Serastro reaches as often below the staff as the queen had reached above it, and his aria is, in its quiet way, A direct response to hers. The juxtaposition of the two famous arias of the ambivalent queen and the wise old man is as much a clue to the meaning of the magic flute as Mozart is going to give us. To anyone who has read Sir James Fraser or Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell on myths, the implication is that Sarastro has taken Pamina from her mother so that she can, with Tamino, reestablish moon and sun, female and male principles in a new peaceful order. Next, we see the prince and the birdman led through a second level of the temple, still pledged to silence. Papageno can't keep still though, and when a hideous old crone appears, he starts chatting with her. He discovers that the superannuated herodian has designs on a boyfriend ten years older than she, and his name is Papageno. He shuts up pretty quickly when he hears that and is relieved when she disappears. Then Pamina appears to Tamino. He keeps his silence as ordered, and she, uncomprehending, for this is a test for her too, sings her heartbroken aria, Ach, ich fühls, ah, I feel it. Sorastro's priests then assemble in front of the pyramids to invoke Isis and Osiris. Sarastro imposes on his young Isis and Osiris the supreme test of will he tells Pamina and Tamino they must say farewell forever <laughs> In a third level of the temple, the three boys restore to Tamino his magic flute, and Papageno gets his magic bells again. These will help them in their new tests. Papageno says, and some gentlemen in the audience will agree with him, that he's had enough of these tests and that what he really needs is a drink. A glass of wine appears miraculously. Papageno drinks it and is overcome by a longing for a wife of his own. He rings his magic bells and sings an aria like something you might have learned in kindergarten. Perhaps you did if you went to a kindergarten where they sang, "I'm Mädchen oder Weibchen, I wish I had a wifey. Papageno's song only brings on the old crone again. He wants a wife? She'll marry him. Because it looks like she's the best he's ever going to get in this impossible place, he finally agrees to marry her, and just for a moment she turns into a beautiful bird girl, the Papagena of his dreams. But in another moment, she is gone. Then the music goes serious again. We're in Sarastro's garden, where Pamina has taken up the dagger her mother gave her, to kill not Sarastro, as she was told to do, but herself, because the silent Tamino seems not to love her any more. The three boys appear, and assure her that he really does love her, but he must prove himself a hero. Is she strong enough to help him? We come to the greatest scene in the opera. We are in a mountainous landscape where two men in armor stand guard on either side of a pyramid with a mysterious inscription. The orchestra begins in the three-flat key of C minor. (laughs) ¶¶ Then the strings play the curiae of a Catholic mass popular in Mozart's day. Then the two armed men, Karl Liebel and Franz Cross in our recording sing, over the Catholic Curier a Lutheran chorale. But the words they sing are not a Christian hymn. They are a translation of the inscription on the pyramid. He who wanders through these terrifying paths will be purified by fire and water, earth and air. If he overcomes the fear of death, he will mount from earth to sky. He will be filled with light and worthy to consecrate himself to the mysteries of Isis. The mixture of Catholic and Protestant music reminds us of the credo of Bach's B minor Mass, which also combines, ecumenically, two quite distinct liturgical idioms. But the additional overlay here of Masonic words, of the myths of Egypt, and in a minute, the myths of the Greeks and the Germans, all this is utterly new with the magic flute, part of its wonder, of its endless complexity. In this mountainous landscape where all civilizations come together, Tamino and Pamina meet and, at last, speak. In fact, they speak in matching musical phrases complementing each other like Isis and Osiris. She will undergo his trial with him. In fact, she says that she will lead him, but he must play on his magic flute. Her father carved it long ago from a primeval oak tree a thousand years old. It will keep them safe. The flute is a talisman like the golden bough that gives Virgil's hero Aeneas safe passage through the underworld. So Tamino and Pamina begin their perilous journey together. They pass into the pyramid and thence through the first mountain's cavern of swirling fire and then through the second mountain's cavern of rushing water, he playing all the while on her father's magic flute. Mozart wrote a quiet, unearthly march for this with mysterious kettle drum footbeats. It is like putting footprints down in space. The lovers emerge from the trial unscathed, successful where Orpheus and Eurydice had failed. The mysterious voices of Act One proclaim that together they have passed the final test. All is well now for the prince and princess, but what of Papageno? He's forlorn under a palm tree. Now it's his turn to think about saying farewell to a cruel world. He appeals to the audience, shades of Mary Martin as Peter Pan, to help him screw up his courage to end it all. He'll hang himself on that very palm tree. Suddenly, Mozart's three boys are there. Remember your magic bells. I forgot all about the magic things, he replies, and plays them, and lo, his papagena appears. No longer a vintage virago, but a helpmate as yearningly youthful and fully feathered as himself. In this recording, she's Ruth Margaret Potts. They sing a barnyard duet about all the little Papagenos and Papagenas they will have, and there's hardly a more joyful piece of music in existence. <laughs> Finally, at the very bottom of Sarastro's temple, the Queen of the Night, her three ladies, and Monostatos, who has gone over to their side, are overwhelmed by thunder. The stage goes dark. Then, in a burst of light, Sarastro, the three boys, the prince and princess, the bird man and the bird woman, appear, ranged around the sevenfold circle of the sun, proclaiming the victory of light over darkness. We are more than ever ready to receive the Magic Flute as supremely civilized music because it blends Italian and German, classic and romantic, comic and tragic, reason and unreason, nature and culture, masculine and feminine, Osiris and Isis, Apollo and Dionysus, sophisticated and unsophisticated, as no other music does. There is a wonderful completeness about it and a marvelous lightness Almost any other composer confronted with the issues in this opera would have weighted it with significant, capital S, music. With Mozart, even the most sublime moments are luminous and light.
1: That was the late music scholar Father Owen Lee discussing the value and impact of Mozart's Die Zauberflöte. To learn more about this opera, check out our other podcast episodes on Die Zauberflöte, Episode 9, The Magic Flute and Masonic Symbolism, and Episode 82, Mozart's Die Zauberflöte from the Perspective of the Bassoon. Die Zauberflöte is currently on the Met stage in a new production from renowned English director Simon McBurney and will be seen live in HD worldwide on June 3rd. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.